Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. Hi, it's producer Adrian here. On today's special New Statesman podcast, we're bringing you the New Statesman debate recorded live at the Cambridge Literary Festival. The motion was, this house believes it is time for Britain to abolish its monarchy. With Tanya Gold, Anna Whitelock and Gary Young speaking for, and Robert Hardman, Tanjil Rashid and Andrew Marr against. everyone and welcome to the New Statesman debate which is now a staple of the Cambridge Literary Festival calendar and this year our motion is a particularly timely one with the coronation coming up. This house believes it's time for Britain to abolish its monarchy. I'm Anusha Kellyan, Britain editor of the New Statesman and I'll be chairing the debate today. Death of the Queen followed by Harry and Meghan's revelations marked a turning point for the royal family. In the run-up to the coronation of King Charles, we're delighted to have six brilliant speakers to tackle the critical questions. Is the monarchy an essential source of stability in troubled times? Or is it a distraction and a financial burden, an institution long past its sell-by date? Speaking for the motion, we have Tanya Gold, an award-winning journalist who has written extensively on the royal family. Anna Whitelock, a historian, author and professor of the history of monarchy at City University of London. And Gary Young, a journalist, author, broadcaster and academic whose most recent book is Dispatches from the Diaspora. Speaking against the motion, we have Robert Hardman, a journalist and author specialising in the monarchy, whose most recent book is Queen of Our Times, The Life of Elizabeth II. Andrew Marr, the broadcaster, author and New Statesman political editor. His books include Elizabethans, How Modern Britain Was Forged. And Tanjil Rashid, a freelance journalist who's recently produced documentaries on the war in Ukraine, ISIS and US politics, and writes for many leading news sources. Now, I'm going to give each of our speakers five minutes to make their opening statements, alternating for and against, and then we're going to open up to questions from the audience. So have a think about what questions you want to ask. One member of each team will then sum up their arguments and we'll do a vote. We will go to our first speaker proposing the motion, Anna Whitelock, five minutes. Stand here? Yes, stand there, okay. stand behind the table. You can see the clock. Good there. afternoon, everyone. Tradition, splendour, pomp, pageantry, national unity, soft diplomacy, tourism, even professors of the history of modern monarchy, all often cited reasons, perhaps not the latter, for the merits, indeed necessity, of retaining and celebrating the British monarchy. All reasons, to some extent, I do or did have some sympathy with. 
Now, my research over more than 20 years, I know I sound rather old, um, has focused on the monarchy, its rituals, rights, and roles, its kings, and in particular, its queens. It is, as some would have it, a golden thread through British history. But all of that is in the past. The question here is about the future. Having been for a long time rather on the fence, over the last few years, I've become increasingly convinced that with some regret, the monarchy should no longer head modern Britain. Now, I'm going to reserve my remarks to Britain, as that's the focus of the debate. But, of course, the British Crown is also head of state in 14 other realms, not least nine in the Caribbean, and they are making their position increasingly and rightfully clear. Once, perhaps, it might be said that the monarchy represented the best of Britain. I think that's debatable. But now, certainly, surely, that is no longer true. It doesn't, indeed it can't, represent modern Britain, modern British values and beliefs, not least in equality, diversity and inclusivity, uh, and I'll return to those thoughts. Now, some of you, perhaps, might be Guardian readers, <laughs> just a hunch. <laughs> and if so, um, you will, I don't want to assume anything, if so, you will have seen the fantastic Cost of the Crown series. Now there, the Guardian have sought to ask reasonable, necessary, and long overdue questions. In fact, they're questions and scrutiny that has long eluded the media, who have been stuck in something of a deferential 1950s uh, time warp when it came, comes to their reporting of the monarchy. I could say more about that, but I won't. <laughs> so they've asked questions about how much is paid for working royals for royal engagement, how much is the king worth the cost of the coronation to the British public and so on, as well as, of course, they've done previous work um, and inquiries into the legal position, constitutional influence. <coughs> now, to all of those questions, and I've spoken to those reporters, the Buck Buckingham Palace responds, ask someone else, work it out yourself, or you have no right to know. Similarly, if you go to the National Archives and call up documents there, seemingly innocuous ones, Many return uh, file, simply uh, the label files closed uh, on the computer and invite you to make a freedom of information request. The monarchy and the royal family are exempt from that. So when you put a request in, the response comes back no. And I've put in some very recent freedom of information requests and that has been the response. So we have entrenched secrecy. We are <coughs> in the dark. Yes, we citizens in a celebrated democracy are unable to give our informed consent because we don't know. Criticism or debate of the, family, the royal family is prohibited in Parliament. The royal archives are effectively closed. There is no financial disclosure. And when there has been investigation, <coughs> the findings are pretty uh, disturbing. We know about Crown consent, sovereign immunity. So scratch the surface, and it is just the surface, and it doesn't look good. So some quick headlines. Crown consent... This is when Parliament asks for consent when bills affect the Crown's interests. Now, as the Guardian exposed, more than a thousand laws were vetoed by the sorry were vetted vetted, vetted by the Queen and Prince Charles <coughs> during, her, during her reign, relating to matters such as justice, social security, race relations, and so on. In 2006, the Queen was given an exemption to um, for an act which prevented mistreatment of animals. The exemption meant that inspectors couldn't go and enter her private estates. Perhaps most concerning and surprising, the royal household is exempt from the Equality Act. Yeah, it, the exempt from the Equality Act <coughs> introduced in 2010, which protects people in the workplace from discrimination. 
Buckingham Palace, when asked about that, didn't deny the exemption. They just said they've got their own process. And then there's sovereign immunity. I've almost finished. This holds that the monarch can't be prosecuted or subject to civil legal action under the law. Effectively, we have a monarch unable to be tried for criminal behaviour. And we know, again, exposure has happened, uh, that a number of laws have been, um, on a number of cases, um, the Crown has been granted uh, legal immunity in respect of their private estates, such as Sandringham and Balmoral. Mm. Are we all okay with that? Then there's finance. The King has been estimated to be worth 1.6 billion. He pays some income tax voluntarily, no inheritance tax, no corporation tax. So, can I just conclude? So, what do we have here? We have an institution which resists scrutiny at the apex of society, which by its very survival reinforces hierarchy. A sense that that some people by birth, not merit, are better than others. And let's be clear, this is about white inherited privilege and an institution that has profited much from colonial injustices. The monarchy has had its time, its run out of road. We need to begin a gradual, respectful transition to abolish it. We can't be the British we think we are and the Britain we want to pass on to our children and grandchildren whilst we have this powerful, unaccountable relic defining us. Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Thanks all for coming. Um, uh, listening to, uh, to, to Anna there, and, and, and someone who writes about the monarchy a lot, um, and, and hearing about this sort of this, this, this terrible secrecy, all I can say is it's a, probably the most scrutinised institution in this country, if not the world. I've been scrutinising it pretty closely for a very long time. Now, listening to the, 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 those points, listening to a lot of these points, um, I'm reminded of um, King Farouk's um, famous maxim, uh, that uh, pretty soon there'll be five kings left. The king of clubs, the king of spades, the king of diamonds, the king of hearts, and the king of England. Uh, he said that in 1948, uh, five years before his own throne went south, um, for very understandable reasons. Um, but um, 70 years on, he's not quite right, because there are still uh, 25 monarchs kicking around, leading uh, uh, roughly 43 of the roughly 200 countries on earth. So, yes, it's a minority sport, but it's, it's an endearing one. Um, and of that 27, roughly half, I'm, I'm not going to stand here and defend the absolutes and the partially absolutes and the authoritarian ones, but about half are constitutional monarchies uh, like our own. So how have these breaks on progress, these sort of backward throwback infantilizing institutions clung on into the 21st century? Um, uh, how has that happened? Well, um, if, if, if you listen to the abolition argument, it is essentially boils down to two things. It's time we all grew up and they cost too much. So let me very quickly deal with those uh, before I get on to the sort of the more positive side of it. Uh, yes, royalty costs. Of course it does. Heads of state costs. We have the only head of state, for example, the only one in the G7 heads of state who does not have his own presidential jet. He borrows an RAF jet when he goes abroad. Everybody else has got one. He certainly doesn't have the nice purpose-built baguette oven that President Sarkozy had installed in Air Force <laughs> R at considerable expense. Um, uh, there is... Uh, the, 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 we, we pay. Of course we pay. We pay the sovereign grant. We pay the sovereign grant to have head of state. You're always going to have a head of state. It's about 50 million uh, as, as a percentage of the sovereign grant, plus another 10% on top to refurb Buckingham Palace. That's 
That's what it is. Uh, heads of state, some cost more, some cost less. The Irish have a very cheap model. The Italian one costs a good deal more and is a lot more opaque. And bonus point for anyone who can name more than two Italian presidents. Um, so, you know, I park that. Uh, break on progress. Well, I mean, you know, the most progressive, forward-thinking countries, some of them in the world, Norway, Holland, I mean, they're hardly backward. Uh, and, and on that basis, I mean, where does that leave poor old Japan? in the corner with the dunce's cap because it's got a fully-fledged emperor, except it wasn't quite like that the last time I was in Tokyo. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's much more nuanced than that. But I, I'll go for three main points that I think why we should not abolish the monarchy, why we're extremely lucky to have it. One is the blocking power, simple blocking power, because the monarch is there, means nobody else can get their hands on the armed forces, the honour system, uh, the judiciary, the civil service, all those things. Now, of course, there are breaches of that, we all know that, but, but overall, it's, it's a very effective blocking power. It's why a lot of those realms, we hear about all those other realms around the world, when they went independent, they had the choice. Do you want a president? Do you want to hang on to this model? They chose the crown, not because they liked Charles's mother. They chose the crown because they could see it as a bullock that protects people from overmighty uh, uh, despots, if you like. Um, and, and when push comes to shove, and it does occasionally, when push really has come to shove, as in Spain in 1981 when the king faced down a coup, or as this country did in the Second World War, having that sort of solidity counts for a great deal. Number two, pressure valve. It means that we, we have two forms of politics. We've got the combative, punchy stuff. Politicians do that. We have a benign force that does, if you like, recognition that reflects the nation to itself. It's why that when, say, in France, when the head of state lays a wreath, half the people standing by hate the person laying the wreath. In Britain, when we lay a wreath, uh, nobody has a problem with the queen or the king doing that. Uh, and, and, and the stability we get, uh, having been around the world with the royal family over many years, the stability and the continuity that we take for granted. Believe me, when you go to countries, Eastern Europe in the 90s, I mean, they were bowled over. To see the Queen, for them, she was the ultimate symbol of stability. And our monarchy still is, by the way. And finally, soft power. Um, when I was writing my latest book, I was lucky enough to interview the great Joe Nye, Professor Joseph Nye of Harvard University, the man who invented, codified, if you like, uh, the whole concept of soft power. He said, your country, you have two absolutely unsurpassed, unrivaled uh, national soft power assets. One is the English language, Shakespeare, etc. The other is the monarchy. And I find that wherever I go, wherever I've been, people, people want to see the Queen was, she was a bucket list head of state. And, and, and the monarchy still is with, with, with her passing. I mean, you know, President Obama, when one of, one of his great speeches reflecting on the whole notion of post-war leadership, singled out two people who had inspired him most, Nelson Mandela one, Queen Elizabeth II the other. Um, and, and, and time and again, uh, that, that, that comes through. It's still true to this day. I was in Germany the other day with the King. You saw it there as well. When he spoke to the Bundestag, I mean, the impact, well, far in excess to any British politicians, any British uh, diplomats there, and some of the diplomats I met are not royalists, they said there is no way a politician could do that. We live in an era of soft power, and of course the monarchies are rational, so are lots of things, so is the boat race, and I don't know, wedding dresses and turkey at Christmas and hot cross buns. I mean, there's loads of irrational stuff. <laughs> the fact is, we are where we are. It has served us incredibly well. I think it would be an act of monumental uh, folly and self-harm uh, to get rid of it. We might never have invented it if we were starting a new country. But as I say, we are where we are, and we're lucky to have it, and I urge you to oppose. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
As a child, my mum used to put on the song Young, Gifted and Black by Bob and Marcia, put my feet on hers and then dance us around the living room. They're playing our song, she say. It was the early 70s, she was barely 30, and I was the youngest of three boys that she was raising alone. <clears throat> Even as she struggled to believe there was a viable future for her children, in a country where racism was on the rise and the economy was in the tank, we danced around the living room, singing ourselves up, imagining a world in which we would thrive for which we had no evidence but great expectations. My presence in this chamber would have been as unlikely to my mother as anything else she hoped I might achieve as we padded around our living room. I am the child of, among other things, aspiration. <clears throat> in two weeks' time, in a formal ceremony viewed by millions, we will get a new king. There was no need for any imagination about what job he would get. Aspiration didn't come into it. This was preordained. He was literally born into it. His qualification for the job was pretty straightforward. He was the eldest son of the eldest daughter of the only son who would do the job. Mm. If he had ever needed a CV, and he wouldn't need a CV because there would be no interview, that would be it. His CV is his DNA. And that's the problem. The royals are a class act. The monarchy establishes inherited privilege at the heart of government and embeds patronage at the centre of power. It enshrines the idea that it's not what you know, do or think that will get you on in life, but who you are. For all the talk of modernity and meritocracy, the message from the top remains that no matter how hard you graft, sacrifice, innovate and invest, you will never make it to those snowy white peaks which are reserved for those who were born there. The message, that message, says talent and ability don't matter. And that's not only toxic, it's dangerous. I was recently diagnosed with a heart condition. I was referred to a cardiologist. Certificates hung on his wall. I asked him where he'd trained, what areas he'd specialised in, how long he'd been practising, and he told me about his career. Imagine if the only picture he'd had on his wall was of his mum. <laughs> and when I asked about his credentials, he'd pointed at the picture and said, well, I don't have any formal training, but my mother was a cardiologist, so I reckon we'll be okay. Well, how did she got that job? Well, she got that job because her dad was a cardiologist, so you're in really good hands. I wouldn't do it to my body. I don't want it in my body politic. Those who insist on the role of our monarchy is merely symbolic, miss the point. It symbolises something extremely corrosive that persists in the present. It enshrines the hereditary principle in a system which increasingly enriches the privilege and privileges the rich. A system that favours not democracy, but deference, where the poor know their place and the rich have their power. <laughs> we should abolish the monarchy now because of all those trends are getting worse now. The gene puddle from which the elite siphons its ranks has become so shallow and fetid. The tendency towards oligarchy is growing now. 
A 2019 Sutton Trust report into social mobility portrays a nation of entrenched and calcifying class stratification where the 7% who went to private school occupy 39% of the elite and the 1% who went to Oxbridge, apologies, occupy 24% of the elite. Meanwhile, after decades of stagnation, real wages of working people are falling. We are going backwards now. Now, that's not the monarchy's fault, but that is what the monarchy represents. I am not only the child of aspiration. I am a child of free school meals and student grants and urban revolt. I danced here not just on my mother's feet, but on other people's dreams. And the monarchy was not just absent from those dreams for more equality and opportunity. It is the antithesis of them. The monarchy says, don't dance, bow. The monarchy says, don't sing, Hold your tongue. The monarchy says you are not a citizen, but a subject. This country does not belong to you, but to those who were born to rule over you. I commend the motion. Follow that. I'll have, I'll have to try, but I should start off by saying that I am partly here under false pretenses, because although I'm on this side of the, the chamber, I am not, in fact, a monarchist. Um, I, do, I don't actually believe that anything based on bloodline and heredity in the modern world, given all we understand, is long-term sustainable. My opposition to the motion is based on my understanding of politics and power, the British culture and the word, it's now time to abolish, it's time to abolish the monarchy and the implication that it's time now. Because I would put to you that we are, as a country, in an incredibly fragile and dangerous position. Um, I was uh, in Scotland during the Scottish independence referendum and I have never seen so much fury and acrimony and anger on doorsteps, people having their windows smashed, flags turned down. It was a really, really unpleasant period for anyone who went through it. And people who were involved in that campaign are still shouted at in the street. And that was the dry run for, and I dare say it, Brexit. Brexit ripped us apart as a country, and we are only slowly recovering from that. We are, as Gary said, going backwards in many ways. We have appalling growth. Our rivers and our beaches, our cesspits and sewers, our public services are in terrible trouble. And he's absolutely right. The elite, the ruling class, have done a rotten job over the last 15 years. But I would put it to you, that is the fault, above all, of the Conservative Party and the private school. The, the monarchy's responsibility for that is pretty marginal or minimal. Uh, we, we heard from the first speaker about the deferential nature um, of the, uh, the media and from Gary about the deferential nature of the country. I see a different media and I see a different country. By far the most devastating uh, assault on the financial situation of the current king was made not by The Guardian but by The Sunday Times in a series of reports over the last few months. 
Um, I don't think that we're a deferential country at all. I think we are an admirably stroppy, undeferential, and quite difficult country. And um, I don't think the monarchy, if, if the monarchy is there to make us bow and scrape, it hasn't done very well. I speak as somebody who would never take any kind of honour from the royal family, and I believe that journalists should stand to one side from them. So those, uh, my, my main argument is that we are too fragile. I don't want to go through another Brexit. You couldn't do this without a referendum. Any referendum at the moment would be incredibly divisive. And all those people who felt that they were cut out by the, the so-called Westminster elites uh, in the past would feel it even more so on this subject. I can see a really nasty, corrosive, divisive process. It wouldn't be easy, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be comfortable, it would be very unpleasant indeed. And I think, given the parlous nature of the country right now, this is the wrong time to do it. The time may very well come, and in due course one day, I hope it does, but it's certainly not now. Uh, one other point, um, I think Republicans have this very, very attractive, naive, rather gentle belief that if there was a presidential system, because there would have to be, the president would be somebody like them. I put it to you, given, <laughs> given, the, given, the last, given the last 10 or 15 or 20 years, um, Gary would have been living under first President Boris Johnson and then President Nigel Farage, or some version of that. We are in the process in this country of importing our very, very angry uh, uh, American-derived culture war. I don't think we need, we, need, we need a war of any kind. I'll be talking more about this tomorrow. But it seems to me that the, the chances of a really unpleasant period in our history, when we're on our backs already, followed by exactly the wrong kind of person as president, is, very, is too high to risk at the moment. When I was asked in the old days, who would I like as president? I would always say Alan Bennett. But I know perfectly well I wouldn't get Alan Bennett. I get somebody much, much darker than that. And th those are the reasons that despite the eloquence and despite the personal stories and the moving eloquence from the other side, I remain against the motion. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. I support this motion because I believe that sacred monarchy infantilizes us, as if Gandalf and Frodo were characters in our national life, <laughs> along with Aragorn or Charles the King. I believe in the truism that the larger your dream world, and monarchy is a dream world, the smaller, sadder, and more brittle your real world. But due to the power of this dream world, we do not have a transparent or accountable system of government. We have rather a gaudy merry-go-round that, with the rising crises in the world, seems odder by the year. Britain feels to me necrotic and undynamic. Our fancied exceptionalism feels less exceptional these days. As almost everyone seems to agree, we are in decline. I believe too, as Gary said, that monarchy is parent and press officer to the class system the ever-present hum that will tell a child from a deprived background that some things are not for them and never will be. If you don't believe the class system is a tangible evil, come to my home in West Cornwall and I will show you bright children wasted, thwarted, destined for minimum wage jobs because the elite of this country are largely chosen at birth. Far from being truer patriots than than we Republicans. Monarchists seem to me to have so little faith in our country and the people in it that they dare not look beyond one family for a figurehead to embody us. And do they embody us? 
If so, why not send their children to state schools? Why not have their children in NHS hospitals? It is a nonsense that monarchy, by its sheer force of magic, I refuse its insistence that it is apolitical because it seeks to preserve its power, and that is a political position, protects our democracy, or if it does, it isn't doing a very good job of it. I'm not going to talk more about what monarchy does to us. I would like to take a sort of health and safety person role and talk about what it does to them. It's not a very comfortable place to be, I think, a deity in an age of mass media, something to stare at, something to feast on. They are, as the late Hilary Mantel wrote in her superb essay, Royal Bodies, like pandas. Royal persons alike are expensive to conserve and ill-adapted to any modern environment. <laughs> it is typical that the then Prime Minister David Cameron, on being told of its contents, condemned it without, I am absolutely certain, reading it. <laughs> And she called the way we talk about monarchy <gasps> discourse empty of content, mouthed rather than spoken. So what is the truth of it? What can we eke out? When considering royals, to count the victims of monarchy is, is, is easier than to count those who are made happy by it. I'll paraphrase Oscar Wilde now. One unhappy royal is an accident, two is carelessness. <laughs> and we have generation to generation a tapestry of ruined lives. Veneration does terrible things to people. Veneration is cruel. There is Margaret, the late Queen's sister, forbidden to marry the man she loved because he was divorced. She could have insisted and would have lost her royal title, but if you've been taught only to be a princess, it must be hard to leave. And she didn't. Instead, she married a man who did not love her and lived a thwarted life. There is the Duchess of York, whose intimate life was put on the front pages of newspapers. Prudes will say she deserved it as an adulteress, but less titled women are allowed to make mistakes. I have made mistakes and so have you. Her pain was monetized by the fourth estate and the shame is entirely ours. Then there is Diana, almost too written about, an unhappy young woman plucked as a virgin from a suitable class to provide an heir for a man who loved somebody else, a mistake for sure and now she is dead and called evil and mad by her late husband's allies. She fought back, that's all. Dehumanization of royal women and dehumanization and canonization are not opposite but closely related. Canonization is another way of not seeing people, is as common as air. It is normal, but it is not normal. The monarchist newspapers, who I like to call on their knees with bared fangs, <laughs> call Kate Middleton weighty Katie, as if it is pitiable and somehow disgusting and shameful to love someone. Now, post-childbirth, she is a saint, of course. Her mother, a former air stewardess and self-made woman, a respectable thing, is called Dawes to Manual. This cruelty to royal bodies and those close to them is not nebulous. It is endemic and systematic. Meghan Markle's relationship with her father, a delicate thing and theirs, was picked apart for money in the days before her wedding. A newspaper suggested that her wedding flowers might have poisoned Princess Charlotte, Yes, indeed, if she had eaten all of them. <laughs> and that by eating avocados, she threatened to destroy the planet. <laughs> if you think this is trivial, imagine it being directed at you for loving someone every day of your life. With... Do I have to be quiet? Yes. Okay. Am I done? <laughs> yeah, no, you can carry on. Okay, sorry. With Spare, his memoir, which I urge you to read, Prince Harry chose to tell the truth of his life in this family, and he has been traduced for it because nobody likes to have their dreams shattered, and there's money in it too. 
He doesn't understand class, of course. I had a brief fantasy he would give up his dukedom and become a tree surgeon. But, as I wrote in The New Statesman, having projected onto him for a lifetime, I can't stop now. That's his job, and I, and I hope he loses it. But he understands what happened to him, and I see him as a whistleblower, and the story he told was a family broken by monarchy and what it demands of royal people and how it ruins them. We were told today that without the magical spell of monarchy, we will fall to a great evil, a balrog or a farage, as if no elected head of state has ever been fit for the task but a Mountbatten-Windsor. It's another element of the gaudy fairy tale we choose to substitute for a healthy and fair national life, which we might see under a republic, one that is fair, vigorous, looks to the future, and is filled with hope. Last opposing speaker. Hi. Since it's now today the festival of Eid, uh, let me begin by quoting from a lecture delivered 30 years ago at the Oxford Centre for Islamic Studies. I quote Islam is part of our past and present in all fields of human endeavour. It has helped to create modern Europe. It is part of our own inheritance, not a thing apart. The person who spoke this truth has many obscure titles. He's the patron of the aforementioned Center for Islamic Studies. Uh, he also happens to be the king. So we appear to have a head of state who recognizes Muslims as integral to Europe, when across the rest of Europe, states, uh, republics uh, in the main, make it clear that Muslims are a thing apart. Uh, with bans on Islamic clothing, on minarets, and presidents who call Muslims invaders. Uh, these examples are all taken from uh, republics. Criticism of Britain's monarchy is being framed in terms of its relevance, irrelevance, sorry, or indeed detriment uh, to minorities. I belong to such a minority, and it's because I do that I'm skeptical of abolitionist claims. Get rid of the monarch, and we don't get rid of kings. We make kings of politicians. So between the elected uh, politicians who would be king and the unelected British monarchs of modern times, who inspires greater confidence from ethnic minorities? For me, it's the monarchs. I don't just mean Charles III's uh, embrace of immigrants, a very long-standing one, or that of uh, Elizabeth II with her fondness for her Commonwealth family, as she called it, uh, I actually uh, trace this tendency um, back at least to the proclamation of 1858, when against the wishes of the Prime Minister and the political establishment, Queen Victoria insisted on Indians being placed on an equality with the subjects of the British Crown. Now that principle was completely flouted by the politicians who ran the empire, but it was as Gandhi put it, the Magna Carta for colonial subjects, and it came from the monarchy. Now, there are only so many ways that a, a, a polity can realistically be organized. Let's look at republics, specifically those we have in Europe which Britain might conceivably resemble. We could have what most of the continent uh, uh, is, uh, a democratic, 
republican nation state, uh, like Poland or Croatia. Now, these societies are always nationalistic ones because their, their raison d'etre is as a homeland for a particular nation. And that virtually always plays out at some level as a synonym for ethnicity. In such republics, if you don't belong to that ethnicity, there will be questions over your loyalty, your, your suitability. If you're Jewish in Hungary, uh, your presence is constantly casting aspersions on you because can you be a real Hungarian? If you're a German from the Turkish diaspora, it's an ordeal getting a German passport. Less than half of German Turks have one because are you a real German? Now, you can also have um, other kinds of republics. Um, basically, there's one other kind, an ideological republic. This is what you have, for instance, in France, where, yes, you might be black, you might be Arab, but so long as you sign up to the values of the republic, you're allowed to be French. And over there, education and a good deal of legislation, uh, especially under Macron, is about bludgeoning people with those values. And woe betide anyone who thinks otherwise, especially Muslims. Now, let's turn to our peculiarly British constitutional monarchy. What is its organizing principle? We have no state ideology. We aren't a nation state either. Uh, Britain loosely claims at least four home nations, but the term British can encompass Indians, Ghanaians, Singaporeans. Uh, and we tend to favor that term because it shows we don't have to be English as uh, we would have to in a, in a potential English uh, republic. No, what unites us all is the king. Mere loyalty to whom makes us all British. That's the organizing principle. Uh, absurd. Our oath of allegiance is to Charles III, his heirs and successors. That's it. Not to any ideology, not to any ethnicity, not to any nation, uh, just to some random, weird, uh, ultimately powerless, symbolically significant family. My mother wears a hijab, doesn't speak much English, loved the queen. She's unimpeachably British in a way that is impossible in any comparable European republic. In fact, black and Asian people can say, most of us, uh, or many of us at least, that our ancestors have been subjects of that same British crown for three or so centuries. Uh, it's as subjects of that crown that we were allowed free movement to come here legally. And it's because we remain such that politicians have a hard job trying to make us leave. For those of us who are here as the flotsam of empire, the monarchy offers us an anchor of familiarity, safety, and trust. Very good. The debate will continue after this short break. If you are subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on The New Statesman app. It's available for both iPhone and Android. Just search New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. 
thank you so much to all of our speakers. You were all brilliant. Um, I just before we go to our audience for questions, I wondered if anyone wanted to come back on any specific points from the um, from their opposing side that they want to get in now. You've got your you've got your pen up. Can I make one for each of them, or just absolutely? Go I for mean, it. where do I start? <laughs> like, literally, no screw. I mean, literally, they're so over scrutinised. That's literally not true. Yes, you know, notwithstanding the Guardian and the piece by the Sunday Times. Talk to anybody at the BBC. I've often talked to them and they literally say the degree to which you can really push back and scrutinise, it's just, I mean, it's just not there. So that's just, you know, the idea of a benign force comparing the monarchy to the boat race and hot cross buns is simply ridiculous. The Queen was a bucket list item. Sure she was. She was a charismatic, compelling individual. That doesn't make a justification for uh, the monarchy. And then... Andrew, Project Fear, come on, that you've got to do better than that. You can't simply say <laughs> you're making well, the same arguments. And let me, let me just complete let me my come point, back at you. Uh, Mr. Marr. Um, you then, I mean, Brexit, I'm sure we can all agree, has destroyed us in so many ways. And what we're now saying is we can't make this change because, oh my goodness, no. it might be as bad as Brexit. Come no, on. No, we're not now. We can't make it. No one's saying now. We're saying it's time. It's time. Yeah, but yeah. Means now. Let's just be clear about the time. <laughs> when? It means now. We don't. We would have to have a referendum, okay? And I'm going to quote my dad here for when he asked my mother to marry him. He said, "I'll marry you in the fullness of time." That's what we're talking about. Here. And, and how long was that? That was actually six weeks. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any more? Well, uh, just one <laughs> final point. One final point. I think, sure, I mean, you know, the monarchs can be nice enough individuals. And I think, you know, people look to Charles's interest in, um, you know, other faiths. Absolutely. But let's just be clear. We're talking about the institution here. We're not talking about, you know, the individual. The institution, of course, is exclusive. You can't even be a Catholic and be uh, monarch here. It's head of the Church of England. And think about the coronation. It is all entirely elitist and exclusive. And the idea that ultimately they're powerless, incredible wealth, an ability to scrutinise legislation and legal immunity. Come on. <laughs> Hold on. Um. Uh, if I might just come out on a few, a few of your points, Anna. I mean, you, you began by saying that the, 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 the problem with monarchy is it's, 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 it's all in the past, and the, the, this idea that it anchors us to the past. Well, it, it does, it does. It, 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 it does link us to the past. It does provide that sense of continuity. And as I was pointing out, you know, it, it, it is, it's that level of stability that, that uh, other countries, they, they, they simply can't get their heads around it. Um, and uh, you, you say that there's, there's all this secrecy. Yes, of course it is. I mean, we're all constantly trying to dig up more. I mean, any day, any, any number of pages of the, of the Mail, the Telegraph and the Guardian uh, will be given over to trying to find out more. And like you, I've, I've put in my FOI requests. I've had a handful back. Most get rejected. But the fact is it's still... Uh, it is still the most scrutinised thing that uh, institution, uh, head of state institution in the world. We know much more about it than we do about a lot of its, its counterparts. But really, I go to uh, across the piece there. I mean, you all spoke very powerfully about, you know, the injustices in the world, the injustices in Britain. And, and it slightly goes to this sort of central point, the monarchy is all things to all people. So if you've got a gripe, you've got a problem, it's all the monarchy's fault. And I think often we, are, we use them 
as a sort of lightning conductor, and we let the politicians get away with it. And, and to, 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 it is. It's when you're sort of saying the, the class system. I mean, if the idea that the monarchy props up the class system... It's just simply not like that. You, 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 you will find nothing snobbier than, than you know, than some, some country clubs on the east coast of the US or propping up the Creon Bar in Paris. I mean, you will find all these, the same injustices, the same inequalities, whether you have a republic or not. But it, it suits, of course, the abolitionist case uh, to say that this is all, all down to the monarchy. And, and Gary talked about, you know, the, the hereditary process, how, you know, it, it enshrines that. We, we, the hereditaries are on the way out. We, we, Tony Blair kicked them all out bar a handful. Um, you know, they're, they're, a, they're a separate... Yes, of course, it's a hereditary institution. Like I said, it's an irrational one. But it, it, it is what it is, and it, it, it serves our purpose. It, it, you can't mess with it. And that, that, of course, it, it's, it, it looks from the outside as a, you know, one family, and it is. It's one family. If you were starting a country tomorrow, you wouldn't say, we need one family, we'll put them in charge in perpetuity and give them lots of money. You wouldn't do it. But it's what it is. And it works, and it works so much better than the alternatives. How you wanted to come in. Okay. So, first of all, nobody's saying that other countries don't have a class system. The issue here is that our class system is enshrined at the very top of our state uh, architecture. That in America, you can talk about those East, East Coast elites, but they are not actually born president. An American child can walk around with a T-shirt saying future president of the United States. There is no such T-shirt that would make any sense in Britain <laughs> apart from one that was passed around by one single yeah. family yeah. from generation to generation. I think Gary, that... can I just come back on that? Because there's a very interesting point here, which is that the alternative American class system is entirely money-based. The people who become president come from very, very rich families and rich families where they can raise lots of money from rich families. And... I think if, if, if the alternative is the, is the American system at the moment, given who has just been president and who's just likely to become president again, I think you're on slightly dodgy ground. Well, actually, actually, Andrew, that's actually not true. That's actually not true. That President Obama was not from a rich family. Bill Clinton was not from a rich family. They had a lot of very, Joe Biden was not from a rich family. Now, hang on. America has a load of money swimming around this political system. Of course it does. But my argument isn't for America. My argument isn't for the American class system. My argument is against enshrining the British class system as the head of state. It's an entirely different thing. It's to say that just because I think that this is wrong doesn't mean that there can't be wrong things happening elsewhere, that there can't be a range of ways in which people are doing things wrong. But in different ways, all of the arguments on the other side boil down to save us from ourselves, save us from our democracy, that if we get rid of this institution oh, my God, we'll have to rule ourselves. We'll have to have those arguments ourselves. Well, those arguments still have to be had. Those battles still have to be have, had. And the idea that somehow postponing them, thwarting them, hiding behind an oligarchy, that somehow that is going to help us, it won't. It does. Okay. It does. This is, get, this is getting really good, and I can't, I, I can't not come back. It seems to me that in terms of the actual power system, the monarchy is a very, very fragile and very occasional guardrail. It is not some great power there at the centre of the system. 
Um, and we have gone through a period where, I mean, certainly I feel we have been incredibly badly let down by our political class. And I don't want to see another of them having, as it were, supreme power as president of, of, of a new kind of system. You guys have to come up with your alternative. You, you know, it's not uh, where we are or some absolutely benign, herbivorous, genteel, democratic, open-minded alternative. It is the alternatives um, which are on offer. And they're the ones around the world. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem. I just say one other thing. An awful lot of people who might have been here today are not here today because they're at the Extinction Rebellion demonstration down in the middle of London. Now, if you look at... We haven't even talked about the biggest, most existential political problem that we all face in this country and around the world, which is certainly climate change. We are on the edge of something really, really dangerous. And we have a prime minister and a cabinet who barely speak about it. We have an opposition leader who appears to be too frightened to speak about it. And at this moment, the only person towards the top of the system, which is the king, who bangs on about it all the time and is steely about it and understands the science, I'm not sure this is the precise moment to get rid of that one person. But he's not saying much. I mean, you'd be right. saying quite a lot. Not, he said a lot as Prince of Wales, absolutely. But actually, one of the first things he was stopped from doing is going to um, COP26 or COP27. So let's just be clear about that. You know, when I talk to younger people, and I'm glad to say there's some here, and I'm sure they can speak for themselves, what they say is absolutely outrageous. You've got this head of state who's got a platform and literally doesn't use their voice. So, you know, talking to people, particularly at the time of the Windrush... Hold on a second. T talking to people at the time of the Windrush generation, they felt totally let down by the Queen. Not, and she was in a constitutionally difficult position because she'd have been speaking out against the government. But at the Chogham Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit, she was too concerned for Charles to be named as her successor rather than speaking out on that racism. Those young people say... I want a head of state who's got opinions and speaks sure. out on things like the environment yeah. and things like racism. The fact that the Queen was celebrated well, never having an opinion on things. Oh, really? Anna, just hold, hold on a second. What about the... I mean, they are in a very difficult position because the politicians have the power in this country. But take, take for example, the ferocious row between the late Queen um, and Margaret Thatcher over South Africa and sanctions and all of that. When they, have, you know, when they have spoken out, it's by and large been on the right side of these things and not the wrong. It's true that the king hasn't said much about the environment because of his very, very difficult constitutional position. But if you take something like uh, the people who've been invited to the coronation, you know, he's not inviting the MPs and their spouses, he's inviting people who did a lot for their communities up and down the country during COVID. He is sending, as Martin Fletcher wrote in the New Statesman recently, very interesting and relatively progressive messages. Now, that doesn't mean I think we should, we should stay with the monarchy forever. It does mean that right at this moment in our national story, it doesn't seem a very, very cute idea yeah, to get rid of him right now. We're not, uh, set, we're not doing the project fear thing. And then we'll open up to the audience. Can I, can I just um, come back I on just, that specific point about Charles and the environment as well? Let's give Anthony. Okay, I just wanted to say very quickly uh, against this idea that whatever president our republic vomits up is going to be some kind of psycho. Um, is, <laughs> is that... Um, unlikely. Uh, you, you know, you can't have... I would like to live in a country where we have a cult of liberal democracy. The ballot box is my holy place. I take my son along to every election and talk nonsense nonsense at him about liberal democracy and we have no space for that because we have this cult of monarchy and all the space all the dialogue this nonsense in the papers day after day what's kate wearing what's he doing the avocados the lilies we have no idea whether we can be a serious country because we're obsessed with this rubbish <laughs> yeah. uh, we
In response to what Tanya says, is, is, uh, and this, this argument we see on the yellow signs now, occasionally from the Republic group saying, not my king. We are in no, a, he is my a king. democracy. Anybody can start a party tomorrow and call it the Republican Party, the whatever. The fact that no major party has gone down that route, it's very straightforward reasons. It's a complete loser. But what, uh, what Anne was saying about, um, about Charles, about the fact that he's been buttoned up, that he didn't go to COP26, for a brand new monarch to go on his first visit to a meeting of 120 other world leaders would be completely pointless. He is very interesting watching how he has morphed from Prince of Wales. And he was a, he was a pivotal figure. I, I was at, a, at a, a, a ministerial summit in Lancaster House the other day. All the, all the environment ministers from all over the world came to this thing. It was going to be quite low level. Then the king said, oh, by the way, when you've had your, your summit, come for a drink at Buckingham Palace. Suddenly, it went from low level to top level. All the ministers, all the UK ministers said they were amazed. It was as soon as the king said, come on over to my place, they all wanted to come. And I met, I met the environment minister from Ghana who said, I'm only here because he's asked me here. And everybody there accepted what he had done. And everyone accepted that he had to do it in a slightly different way. But you talk to someone like Tony Juminiper, he was there. He said, this guy has done more for the environmental cause in this country, if not in, in, in Western Europe, than anybody else. And I was in the room. I was David in the Attenborough? Uh, no, 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 I was in the room. David Attenborough's done great things in terms of communication. But, I mean, I was in the room at COP26 in Glasgow. And I was following Charles around for a day. And he went into the room to meet Joe Biden and don't, don't forget that it was Charles who created the event that led to the first Earth Summit, that led to the first COP. So he's like kind of granddaddy of COP. And Biden put his arm around him and said, if it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. Now that, I mean, soft power, whatever you want to call it, I mean, that, that, that is a level of engagement on that issue. So I do think on that point, the idea that Charles has suddenly been put in a box and is never going to talk about environment again, he does it differently. He has his convening power. He's slowly changing the way that he does things as monarch. monarch all monarchs are different. And it's not as though, you know, the great reign of, of, of the great Elizabeth II is over and now it's downhill all the way. It's not. It's changing and it's different. But I still think it's better than any of the alternatives. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And now I want our audience to ask our debaters some questions. There's some mics going around, so put your hands up. If you... I saw that hand first, this gentleman over here. Thank you. Um, I enjoyed all of that, all those different viewpoints. I think that you were also circling around a lot, particularly in, afterwards on what I think is the main opportunity cost of situation we have at the moment, which is... A well-designed liberal democracy, I think, does need a representative head of state with actual, actual constitutional powers, uh, particularly to oversee the, the elected head of state in some way, to have the power to call that person in or their government in. Um, we've seen this with... Uh, government recently attempting to override international and in fact even its own laws. Now the, the, the crown as we have it is too scared to say, oi, you can't do that, um, you, you, you know, you've got to stop. And so I think that one of the big problems we've got with the constitutional monarchy is we don't have that role in our polity and we desperately need it. And I don't think it should necessarily be uh, you know, then the problems are, how do you elect that person? Who is it? I think it might be quite a good idea if it was a rule, a rule number one was you can't take that role if you've ever been a politician. Okay. Um, so what's your question to our, our... Rule number two would be, 
something I learned from San Marino that um, you should have at least two at one time head of states and neither of them should be the same sex or married to each other. Okay, um, so you're asking so what's, what's the alternative? I'm saying, yeah, the alternative, there's... I, I th but I think I would like to hear if, if other alternatives occur to our... Thank you. Because if you do get rid of the monarchy, you've got to have an alternative. Well, let's ask our proposing team this question because they're the ones who want to abolish the monarchy at this time. Uh, I mean, my guess would be that we would all have different notions. I would like to see, um, um, if we were to get rid of the monarchy, I think it might be part of a broader constitutional reform that would also get rid of the House of Lords. And in the place of the House of Lords, which is also the hereditary, uh, uh, there's still a lot of hereditaries in there, and if they're not hereditary, then they're appointed. I think you have an elected House of Lords, um, uh, that is uh, elected probably in a different way, like by proportional representation, for example. And you could either then have the House of Lords elect someone who was um, the head of state for a period that would come out of that body, as we have a prime minister that comes out of the House of Commons, or, and then you get into election overload, you could have a nationally elected um, uh, president. Um, but e either one of those would work for me, so long as... Basically, the power, wherever there is power, it should be accountable. And so, that, uh, and so we should have accountable, they should be accountable. But I actually agree with the point that the questioner makes, which is how do you put a break yeah. on this a, nonsense? That is a really important point. It's a really serious point. And I think, I think the problem, I mean, I'm also, in, as it happens, in favour of abolishing the House of Lords, but it needs to be replaced by an elected of Senate of the nations and regions is what I would like to see. Mm -hmm. um, I think the problem with most forms of election is the way politics goes. Um, you elect a president and you elect a government in roughly the same cycle, and they're very likely to come, if not from the same party, <laughs> then at least from the same part of the spectrum. And therefore, the elected figure is not going to be an effective check on the prime ministerial figure. I think the relationship between a prime minister and an elected president is something we haven't really talked about, and it's clearly going to be very difficult and very complicated. But at the moment, I mean, you know, we, we had the whole business of Boris Johnson trying to prorogue Parliament. Um, we have, I think we've been through a period, and I fear there might be more of this to come, of politicians, as it were, smashing up the guardrails, the few guardrails around the system uh, for their own purposes. And I worry very much that you take that guardrail away and you put in an elected figure, and it'll be worse, not better. And, and can, I, can I just say to the gentleman, when, we, when you say that the constitutional monarchy does, does nothing, and doesn't act as a break, A, we don't really know what goes on because that is a, that relationship, the whole point of it, it's a private one. The monarchy is not a public uh, table-thumping institution that goes, no, this shall not pass. Um, I, I'm sure people would have, well, Andrew's just mentioned the, the prorogation crisis of, of 2019 when, uh, when Jacob Rees-Mogg comes up to Balmoral, uh, has a slice of Dundee cake and says, I want a, I want a prorogation, please, ma'am. Well, uh, the, the monarchy, and I know what happened, the monarchy took legal advice and was told, well, that's what you have to do because that's what the democratic government of the day wants. It subsequently turns out to be illegal. But that, 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 that's, I'm not saying the system is utterly perfect, but it does act as a break. You talk to Tony Blair. Now, what Tony Blair would say is, 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 is you've got this institution. It makes you think twice. It's, it's there. It, it does act as, 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 as a bullet against just casual, uh, you know, uh, dictatorship or, if, or, or overmighty politicians just doing what they want because it, it, they, they know that this institution, you don't, don't just sort of ride roughshod over it. It does have sort of a residual 
blocking, warning, stopping power. Robert, these are all just the general points. And, you know, you yourself said, and I quote you, we don't really know what goes on. Yeah. That is the point. No, but we know we can find we find out what goes on afterwards. For example, when Blair got rid of We don't, because well, the we Royal do. Archives is closed, so we uh, don't. Let's go to this uh, at the back. You've had your hand up consistently. Um, but in light of Andrew's uh, initial concern, um, and having had a referendum that I really didn't enjoy, um, do you think it is uh, the royal family is reformable when condition at the moment or do you think the only I think it's a really good question I mean I think it is the question um, in fact on Monday evening there's a panorama which is looking at exactly this question um, and I think there's some suggestion you know that Charles is for example he's given you know a pretty lukewarm but some support for a study into the monarchy's colonial links you know and that's been celebrated but let's be clear he's supporting a PhD thesis, which some people here might know, does not take, you know, doesn't happen very quickly. It's a number of years down the line where those findings might come out. There's no sign that there's any uh, appetite for big transparency and accountability around things like finance um, and reform. There's no sense of any change over the Royal Archives. You know, can the, the monarchy reform and would we, you know, is moving to a kind of Scandinavian monarchy something that people would want? Basically, I mean, the polls say, no, it's shifting. The argument's shifting. People are just over the monarchy. It's had its time. And it doesn't represent people. I mean, the point that he's kind of repeatedly <clears throat> made, that it's, uh, um, I think uh, the gentleman said uh, that it is, uh, it, it's what unites us all, the king. No, it doesn't. It literally doesn't. Um, so I think that's the point, really. Whether they try and reform or not, I don't think it's enough. Can I just ask you one very quick Do you think it's removable without... No. Thank you. And we've got a question here and then um, a question on the balcony as well, so I don't neglect um, you. Yes, what I haven't heard is the Russian roulette nature of hereditary monarchy. And if we have to think that if, uh, what was it, Edward hadn't fallen in love with Mrs. whoever she was, Wallace. <laughs> Wallace. Mm -hmm. um, he'd have had a Nazi for a king. He was, it's known that. And also in our current time, if Charles had died, Prince Andrew would be king if, it's, if he'd had... Mm. And I think that's the thing. <laughs> We've got to put that to the opposing side. Well, we're, all, all one can say is history is a strange thing and thank God twice. But I would um, pick up what Anna was saying. Actually, the polls, of course, show still quite strong support for the monarchy. It hasn't gone. So you say it's inevitable, it's the waves of history. It's a bit like Nicola Sturgeon telling us three years ago that Scotland was definitely going to become independent. Uh, the latest poll uh, that's uh, going to be quoted in Panorama on Monday shows that in 2012, so the year of the Diamond Jubilee, 72% uh, of young people supported the monarchy, quite interestingly, now only 32 and overall, 75% supported the monarchy in 2012 and 58% now. It is still a majority. It's shifting. Still, yeah, sure, it's still a majority. But, I, I, but when, just to go back, we're not talking about right now. Time, it's the ah, fullness okay. of time. I thought, <laughs> I thought we were. I thought we were. <laughs> but, I mean, we can, we can play sort of pole tennis, if you like. I mean, YouGov does, YouGov does a very solid bit of royal monitoring. It goes back over decades. 
Um, and, and it shows, uh, uh, it, it's not quite where we were under, under QE2, but it's not 58, it's about 65 at the moment. It's way, way ahead of anything else. But I, I'm interested you talk about a panorama there, and I mean, this idea of this unscrutinised media. Panorama has done extraordinary things to the monarchy over the years. As you say, it's got another one coming out next week. The idea that somehow the monarchy floats along without anybody poking around. Um, let's all tune in next week and see. Gary. <laughs> Uh, I think the point that the last questioner uh, made is a good one and basically relates to my cardiologist point. That kind of, um, uh, you know, are you going to be any good at this? Do you know, when it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. There's no interview. Your time's up. Now it's your turn. You're a Nazi? Well, you know, time's up. Mm-hmm. You're uh, uh, an abuser or a flan? Well, you know, it's your well, We have a very good turn. system. If we get a duff one they get pushed out, as we saw with the abdication. If we had a complete lunatic, then we would have what happened in Nepal in 2006, where, uh, where the, the crown prince went mad, shot half his family. Uh, Nepal ended up with a sort of pre- with the prince like Andrew figure. And the monarchy went. And then the abolitionists, <laughs> and the abolitionists won, and it's now a republic. So I'm saying, of course. Uh, but we do, you know, there are processes for, for getting rigged wrongons, and Edward VIII is a very good example of that. I would rather have a referendum than a mass suicide in Buckingham. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd go with you on that, Gary. Um, I would agree. <laughs> I think, to uh, um, uh, relating to the, the, the question even prior to that, that the, the, you said we had a referendum that we didn't enjoy, that you didn't enjoy, and we didn't enjoy it. I'm, a, I'm, I'm now making an assumption about how you voted, because we lost. And um, that, is the nature, that is the nature of these things. It's what's kind of crude right. and sometimes problematic about something like a referendum. Can I come back very, very Can quickly? Can you honestly say that if that many people were unhappy with something, that we should just carry on doing it? Can I, can I just come back on that, Gary? I don't think it's winning or losing that made those referendums inherently so poisonous and so damaging. They were all ultimately about deep identity, and they made people think about their identity. And once people are thinking that way, they become very, very aggressive, defensive um, uh, people. And that was certainly the case in Scotland, because it was all about who am I? It was certainly the case in Brexit, because it was about who am I? And it would be the case here as well. I don't think the people who got Brexit are unhappy that there was a referendum. They're unhappy with... They, said, they, they all say, this is not the Brexit I voted for. <laughs> this is, this is, so this they're is just there. unhappy. Let's go to, let's go to you in the, on the balcony there, yeah. Hi, hello, thank you. Uh, Robert, particularly, I think we've been talking a lot about um, collective identity, um, and uh, I think you said something about, it, this is a reputation question, um, about how you can't mess with it. Well, it has been messed with, and whether or not that is the shame of Andrew or the humiliation of two young boys uh, walking behind their mother on national television, uh, whether it, that is the ongoing shenanigans of Meghan and Harry and all the tittle-tattle that goes with that, the reputation has been messed with and actually I don't think there's anybody in this room that would disagree that for the late Queen's reign it was an extraordinary thing but we're not there anymore and maybe actually they should quit while they're ahead <laughs> well, um, uh, you, 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 you make a good point I mean the, 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 there's, there's plenty of um, uh, dirty laundry flying around at any time sorry mixing my metaphors there but um, there, there always is uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, Harry, Meghan, Harry's book, 
Harry and Meghan's programmes, Harry and Meghan's previous programmes. I mean, there's usually a Harry and Meghan project somewhere. Sure, we've got Meghan's book coming down the track soon. That ain't going to be fun for the, the king either. Um, yeah, th- 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 this, is, this is part and parcel of what monarchy is all about. It partly goes back to my, um, my soft PowerPoint. I mean, what is the most watched thing on Netflix around the world? It's the crown. Uh, the royal family hate it. Uh, but the fact is, it, 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 it is reflective of, of the sort of soft power, if you like. But, but going back to your point, it, it was worse. Under the Queen, it was much worse. I started out as a royal correspondent in the, by accident in, in 1992. At the start of 92, it was all happy. A sort of royal story was Queen hats, Queen's hat blows off an Ascot. That's about it. By the end of 92, we'd had the collapse of three marriages. We'd had the winds of fire. I mean, I, I didn't set out to be a royal correspondent. I just ended up being one. And it was the most extraordinary period. And all through the 90s... You had one after another. You had the Andrew Morton book. You had Panorama. You had all these things going on, the domestic soap opera agenda. And yet, and yet, at the same time, you had the Queen at the height of her powers. You had the Queen sailing into Cape Town in her yacht to be greeted by post-apartheid President Mandela waiting on the quayside. An unbelievable moment. You had the Queen making the first ever state visit to Russia. Absolutely extraordinary moment. You saw her leading all the world leaders back on the 50th anniversary of D-Day. One of the most moving things I've ever seen. And so you see the, the sort of the, 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 the parallel role of the monarch. There's the sort of soap opera dimension, but there is also this this institution that that, that represents so much to so many. Uh, right around the world. I mean, uh, uh, in a way that I, like, I think we, we, we take it for granted. But believe me, if you stand back and you look at it from a global perspective, I think they would regard this, this motion as bonkers. I mean, just to say, uh, I mean, I think, I, I take the point about the royal family, but actually our argument's better than that. We, we could rely on the royal family, but we're actually talking about the insidious power, unaccounted for influence and finance of the monarchy as an institution. So I think, you know, we're not even falling back on the argument of the royal family. I mean, sure, you just have to name Prince Andrew, case closed. (laughs) But also, this whole thing that you keep repeating these kind of cliches about, you know, uh, we all respect the monarchy and the institution of the monarchy, and and then you talk of great nostalgia, you know, the Queen sailing into such and such... You know, well, they were big moments. Yes, I mean, I know, they're big the moments in modern is, history. And it was in response to the idea that you know we've got are, you have you have reverse headwinds. But the other thing is, all of these things were heavily curated and choreographed. I've read in the archives about how these royal tours were choreographed. It's amazing. But the thing that we don't see in the royal archives is actually the kind of political inf- political influence she had. So you, yeah, you can talk about how they were really nice. It was amazing when the yacht sailed in. What was she doing there? What was the influence? There is a she whole. She had to bit fight to be there because her modern, government didn't want her to go. People in the Foreign Office of said British it's too soon. She fought to be know. there. I just wanted to say something about the crown. I don't, I don't think that people watch the crown because they wish they had King Charles as their head of state. I think they watch it because it's a horror show, because it's a story of, 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 of pain and dysfunction, you know, and sacrifice. There is a huge, I believe, sadistic element to the way, to the way that we gawp at monarchy, which is why I wanted to talk so much um, about the pain they must be. And I just want to say it's a little bit, you know, sentimental, but I would like to say it. But I, I see those pictures of, of young Prince George, the, the heir to the throne, when he's wheeled out on public occasions and he looks so strained and he looks so tense uh, and I uh, you know I, 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 is there anyone in this room who would want their child to be king of England anyone anyone <laughs> anyone <laughs> okay we had a question here sorry the lady in the green jacket 
Can I have a go first? Oh, sorry. How I... do you propose we go about abolishing the monarchy when you stated that it can't be discussed in Parliament and there's a total lack of appetite for a revolution in this country? <laughs> I don't think anyone's yeah, yeah. talking about a revolution in the manner of Charles I. I think what we're talking... There would have to be a referendum, and I think you're right. I mean... You said to start it's not allowed to be discussed in Parliament. So how... Well, you, they could certainly bring forth a referendum, Bill. There would have to be a referendum. You're absolutely right, and that's the point, that it wouldn't happen overnight. And, you know, the politics of the moment... Could I help out the opposing team, briefly? <laughs> which, which is that the parliamentary system is very, very fluid, and in a situation where a big majority of the country wanted a referendum on the monarchy, the Speaker would ensure that that was discussed. Mm. Um, they would not stop that happening in Parliament, I'm absolutely sure. Might not go through the House of Lords, another reason for abolishing it, but it would certainly be discussed in the Commons. Come and sit over here, Andrew. You know you've got a space just there. I'm just being helpful. Sorry, may I have my turn now after my husband oh, yes. stole my opportunity? <laughs> I would just like to say that I'm against the um, motion, um, but I accept that uh, change is needed. Um, I would like to ask the panel if they could see uh, an argument uh, for Charles standing aside for William, who I think has age on his side. Uh, I think he shows an innate uh, ability to... Um, identify and relate to people in the way that his mother did. Um, I think that uh, he has time ahead of him to, uh, you know, uh, help the monarchy um, reconnect with, with people. Um, do the panel think that that might be a possible compromise? Thank you. Does anyone want to come in on that? William doesn't want model. it. William has to, had to get his head around the fact that he's in, you know, in line. He resisted it. He didn't want to be. And I think Charles will do everything to give William a little bit longer uh, without that job and with his family relatively young and growing up. So I don't think... I, and also, Charles himself said he wanted the job. He's been waiting for ages. It's the gig he's always wanted. We've got another question at the back there. Hello, thank you so much. Um, just to the opposition team, I think... Um, would any of you be in support of giving the monarchy more power because you've all kind of said you're happy with how things are now? So would you be in support, if you're so in support of the monarchy, with actually giving them more power? And if not, why not? Um, and if you think that they shouldn't have more power, then why are you so sure that where we've gotten to now in the constitutional settlement is so sacrosanct that we can't continue with reform? Very good question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Shall I try? Mm -hmm. So, I'm a Democrat, um, and I, I therefore do not want to see the monarchy having more power. They only have a tiny sliver of power at the moment, almost none, and I think that's about the right amount. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can I concur? I mean, I, I think that the, 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 it's, it's evolved. Where they are has evolved, and, it, and it's, 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 it's an equilibrium that I think people are pretty happy with. It's, people certainly don't want to see them have further powers, I don't think they want further powers. I think they're often credited with too many powers. I mean, for example, one of the central charges we heard from 
Harry and Meghan was the way that the, the evil royals took away security from their son. I mean, at which point I was waiting for the Home Secretary to jump in and go, no, hang on, royal security is a matter for me, and they didn't. Um, you know, there's a sort of perception that they can pull all these levers. They really can't. Hold on, are you OK they're... with the exemptions? So it's fine for the royal household, the institution, not to be subject to the Equalities Act? There are all sorts of quirks of uh, exemptions. They are, there are, there are. There are other institutions that are exempt. I mean, no, you know, the MOD are. Yeah, there are. I mean, uh, all I can say on, on, on the point of the royal household, having, having looked around it, I'd say it, it, they, they benchmark it against all... Uh, like similar sized government departments and every time they benchmark it on all the various parameters it comes out ahead of the average um, white old I, I mean you might have to be more specific I don't understand when you say look around the royal household and quirks come on it's a quirk it is a quirk everything about it is but it, they, they, they live in the modern world and the, and the, the, the royal household is, is, is they measure it in, in, in all form whether it's, it's, it's diversity equality everything all the, all the, the, the I, I've, I've seen the, the What's the diversity thing? of its staff in the royal household? It's higher than the Whitehall average. I can't give you the exact statistics. That's a very I, low bar. Yeah, that's a really low well, bar. Really low bar. Uh, okay. They're benchmarked against the rest of, you know, public life. They're, they're they a public are sector the apex operation. Of society. They're supposed to represent us all. They're meant to represent all things to all people. And the rest of, the, the rest of Whitehall isn't exempt from the Equalities Act, right? I mean, you say they live in the real world. They're actually exempt. It didn't used to be that. I mean, it was appalling. They used to have all sorts of discriminations. I'm not saying by it's by well, any They are quality. now. They're exempt from things. Yes. The, the, That's the, okay. The, 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 no, it's, it, there, there are all sorts of legal um, technicalities. I'm not a lawyer. There are reasons why when the, 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 you, know, you have legislation comes forward and there are things like, you know, yes, they, they are exempt from, from what you talked about, sort of inspectors coming to check animals. I mean, you know, the... the, the they will still be checked. It just doesn't mean that you, you don't have, uh, you know, someone trying to say, oh, I'll just, I'll just turn no, up. No, but what if okay. Prince Andrew, what if some of the allegations about Prince Andrew had taken place at Sandringham or Balmoral? Oh, they'd be investigated, wouldn't they? They're, they're actually, against the law, They're legally yeah. exempt, uh, those no, estates. No, no, no. no. So I think we need to. Well, no, I mean, it's, I think it is you two who are giving your Princess Anne. Princess Anne got done for um, for a dog attack, and so Harry got investigated for a, a bird being shot. I mean, you know. If you want to chip in now, before just the closing. very quickly yeah. on the scrutiny point, mm. um, you were saying that the you know BBC classically never scrutinises the royal family, and I would just like to point out on behalf of my former and indeed now current <laughs> colleague, Emily Maitlis, that's true. not entirely true. <laughs> She's left. <laughs> All right. We're now going to have two minutes each of closing statements from one member of each side, and then we will go to another vote. So, Anna, I think you were doing your... I haven't said much, so I'll just... <laughs> <laughs> I think compelling... Uh... But I think we can all agree, ultimately not convincing. Um, what can I say? I mean, I think there's lots of uh, points we've pushed back on. There's a lot of kind of whataboutery, a lot of general comments, a lot of, you know, unifies the nation. There's a lot of project fairness. There's a lot of, oh, but Charles uh, supports other faiths. All uh, in some part, uh, you know, true, at least in respect of his support for other faiths. We're talking about an institution, though. We're talking about an institution that is exclusive, that represents power, wealth, and white privilege. And I think we might as well just reflect on the coronation. Uh, some of us will be, be watching it or talking about it. And at the beginning of the, uh, the coronation ceremony, there is the recognition. 
And it begins with the Archbishop of Canterbury effectively asking, and in many ways it is a bit like a, a wedding service, he asks effectively, do you take this man to be your king? It's an ask, it is the ask, but ultimately now, of course, it's just a ceremonial one. We're not really asked to give our affirmation and consent. Everybody will just nod or there'll be a a ceremonial uh, yes. And so we're not asked to give our consent, but even if we were, it's not an informed consent. We're kept in the dark. I mean, if it's so great, if they have no power then why are they not more transparent and accountable? Why are the archives closed? Why, when Buckingham Palace are asked very reasonable questions, do they say, it's nothing to do with you, or go and find out somebody else, go and ask somebody else? How can it be that the king gives his first Christmas speech where he talks passionately about the great anxiety and hardship that families are facing as they try and feed their family and keep warm? And indeed, he played tribute to all those, and I quote, wonderfully kind people who so generously give food and donations. So says the man with an estimated wealth of £1.8 billion ahead of an institution with untold wealth. It's it's unequal, and it's time, in the fullness of time, (laughs) Britain to abolish the monarchy. (laughs) Um, I I hear all that. I I, I simply say that what we've heard from the the, the proposition side is, is... of course, it's, it's, it's appealing. It's, it's, it's utopia. It's a utopian vision of, of a wonderful, happy world where everything's better and it will be better if we get rid of this institution. I'd say it's utopia, but it's myopia because you are losing a really precious thing that really does go... And I, you could accuse me of being sentimental or nostalgic or whatever, but I think Tangel's point, I think, has been very much overlooked in this debate, but the, 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 the way in which that the monarchy does have this cohesive factor, and you talk to faith leaders, all faiths, Uh, and and, and different communities over the years. You talk to people like David Lammy, he'll tell you that how after the Tottenham riots, all the party leaders came, they all said something must be done, they all went away again. The only person who came and came and came again was Prince Charles with his charities. I've seen the same thing happen in Topstith in Liverpool, where he's the only person who still keeps going back, still can remember those, those, those riots. And the monarchy engages with popular life at a completely different level to politicians. Whenever I'm on a royal walkabout, you always chat to people in the crowd. Have you ever seen somebody, have you ever seen a member of the royal family? And they will always go, well, you know, my granny saw so-and-so, my mum saw so-and-so, I saw Princess Anne open a shop, whatever it is. And then you turn to them and go, yeah, and who's your MP? And they go, well, I don't know, I have no faintest idea. <laughs> so, you know, they engage at a different level because they're not on the political cycle. Uh, you look at, you look at a, a, the, the, it's, it's there on the internet, the United Nations every year print a thing called the UN Human Index. And it's a, it's a cross-section of all the different indices, standard of living, education, life expectancy, you name it. As I said at the start of this, there are only 27 monarchs in the world today. In that, top, in that list of 190-odd countries, the top 20, 12 are constitutional monarchs, monarchies. And now, I'm not saying for one minute that having a hereditary head of state gives you two years extra life or better health service. However, it fosters those conditions of stability and continuity. When I was writing my book, I, I managed, the great thing about writing a book in lockdown is you can get important people. I managed to interview George W. Bush because he was stuck at home. And it was one week after the mob had charged the, the, white, uh, the capital in, in, in Washington. And he said, look, I'm no fan of monarchy. I don't want George III back. 
But that would not happen in your country because you have this division of powers. And it does lead to this level of stability and continuity. And yes, they've got wealth. They haven't got 1.6 billion. That's sort of, that's crazy. If you're starting to chuck in, you know, all the diamonds and the stuff, they can't possibly sell. So park, park the wealth, park the wealth argument. We're talking, we're talking myopia, utopia. And just largely, lastly, my favourite tweet of the whole of the last year. I don't normally like Twitter. It was just in the week, as some of you would have heard, read it, I'm sure. The week that the Queen died, uh, someone tweeted, there's a pint of milk in my fridge. It's seen two prime ministers and two monarchs in a week. There is no other country in the world that could change its head of state and its head of government in three days without an angry word or a shot being fired, let alone a revolution. Thank you. Okay. And now we're both... Very good. The results are in. So before our debate, uh, those for the motion were 176 and those against 122. And for the vote that we've just had after the debate, those in favour of the motion, 202, and those against, 77. So the ayes have it. Fantastic debaters, you've been brilliant, and thank you so much to our audience too. You're all going to the tower. You've been listening to a special edition of the New Statesman podcast, recorded live at the Cambridge Literary Festival. Producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thanks for listening. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.